Well, good morning, Silver Hill Memorial. God is good. All the time. And all the time. Amen. I bring you grace and peace in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is such a blessing to be worshiping with you. And before I begin the sermon, I'd like to take a moment of personal privilege to thank Reverend Dr. Elliot Hodge for her invitation to preach in her absence. I'm also grateful for Ms. Shannon Hilton for being an outstanding liturgist today. Uh, and a huge thanks to Ms. Tamara Davis and Ms. McGill for orienting me to worship this morning. Now, as you heard, there are lots of choices for how this Sunday can be preached, but Reverend Dr. Hodge told me that before she left, she had everything set up for Heritage Sunday. Now, over the phone, I acted like I knew what she was talking about, and immediately afterwards went and looked up Heritage Sunday in the United Methodist Church. I had never celebrated Heritage Sunday when I was pastoring at a local charge in Saluda. I could not recall my home church in Columbia, South Carolina, celebrating this Sunday either. I grew up United Methodist in Columbia. That is something that Reverend Hodge and I share. But you'll see on the back of your bulletins, Heritage Sunday is the day United Methodist Christians honor their past and envision their future. It's the day we remember where we've been in order to figure out where we are going. The other thing about this Sunday is that it's Ascension Sunday, the day that we read about Jesus rising into heaven, taking his place at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, as the Apostles' Creed says. When we observe this Sunday, we usually do so by reading the beginning of the book of Acts, but I decided to preach on an alternative text for the day, the last ten verses of Luke, because that's part of our heritage too, and I'm wondering because you never know what it's going to teach you about where you've been and where you're going. Today's passage covers the same moments as Acts chapter 1, but slightly differently. They are related after all. We do proclaim that uh, the, book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts have the same author. Now, according to Luke, three things happen right after Jesus rises from the dead. First... There's a group of women who see the empty tomb, and they run and they tell the disciples, Jesus has risen from the dead. But the disciples don't believe the women. Big mistake, if I may say so myself. The second thing that happens is that two followers of Jesus are walking to the road that walking on the road that leads to Emmaus, and they encounter Jesus both on the road and then later in a meal, and then they go running to the disciples and they say, Jesus is risen from the dead. But the disciples still don't believe it. Finally, Jesus appears in the very room with the disciples, unbeknownst to them. And again, the disciples still don't believe that Jesus is alive in front of them, risen from the grave. They thought they were seeing a ghost, and they were scared half to death. That's what we read in verse 37, which immediately precedes the verses we read for today. And Jesus tries telling the disciples, no, really, it's me, it's Jesus. See, 
Ghosts don't have flesh and bone. Look at my hands, look at my feet. See the wounds, it's me. It's not until Jesus asks for food and eats it in front of them that they believe that Jesus is really before them and alive and out of the grave. And I'm going to pause for a moment and say how wonderful I think it is that Jesus is recognized most clearly by his disciples when he eats in front of them. We know the stories. We know that Jesus had this incredible ability to break bread with others, to eat with others. It didn't matter who they were or where they were from or whether Jesus agreed with them or not. If people were hungry, Jesus fed them or ate with them or both. That's what I want for all of us Christians. I want us to be known for the ways that we feed others, whether it's feeding them home-cooked meals or feeding them with faith and hope and love. Feeding others is part of our heritage, and I'm positive that Silver Hill Memorial has done an amazing job of feeding others in the past, both with their missions, I'm sure with their fantastic potluck dinners and meals. I am curious how it will feed others in the future. But back to our story, once Jesus eats in front of the disciples, he wastes no time with them. He knows that his time is limited on the earth, even if he does appear to the disciples for the next 40 days here and there. So he dives right into his teacher mode, his lecturing mode, and he brings up scripture with them. He's not teaching the disciples anything new like he did in the past. He's just bringing them back to the lessons that they already know, the lessons that Jesus has already taught them. And he says to them, everything I told you while I was with you, it all comes down to this, y'all. All the things written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms have to be fulfilled. And then Luke tells us a really lovely detail. Jesus opened the disciples' minds to understand the scriptures. For the first time, the disciples get it. They understand what Jesus was saying when he predicted his death and resurrection all those times before that fateful night in the Garden of Gethsemane, that fateful night of the Last Supper. They understand how Jesus' story is connected to the rest of Hebrew scripture, how Jesus fulfills the law of Moses, how he predicted or was predicted by the prophets, how he used the Psalms to teach everything they needed to know about worship and praise and lament and suffering because that's what the Psalms do. They contain the multitude of human emotions. They're kind of like the little Bible, as Martin Luther once said about the book of Psalms. Don't forget that Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 when he is hanging on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The disciples get a sense of their own spiritual heritage in this moment when he opens up their minds to the scriptures. The law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, everything else, they are treasure troves full of stories and miracles and testimonies to the fact that God loves us. 
that God loves us often in spite of the ridiculous and often awful things we do, and God will stop at nothing to save us. Because that's how much God loves us. God, our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer, is willing to suffer and die that we might have new life. How could anyone not want to change their heart and life to experience this love? A love that tells us that nobody is beyond redemption. Well, they may not want to change it if they learn who is carrying the message. Because what if it's not Jesus who's carrying this message of salvation and forgiveness and turning your heart and mind to God? What if it's the disciples who are carrying that message? Because Jesus isn't the one who's leading the charge on preaching the good news after the resurrection. It's the disciples. And I just wonder how those 11 people felt in that moment once Jesus said, you will be my witnesses to these things. Huh? Me? One of the people who didn't believe that you were alive until mere moments ago? Come on, Jesus. Don't you remember my track record with you? Don't you remember how I really didn't know scripture when you were teaching it, you know, at the Sermon on the Mount? Don't you remember all the, the times I was confused? Don't you remember all the times that I was scared? Don't you remember the times that we abandoned you? The times we let you down? If we're honest, these are also things that go through our heads when we hear Jesus saying that we will also be his witnesses, because that's our place in the scripture. We read ourselves as the disciples. Jesus is talking to us as much as he is talking to his most immediate followers in the early church. And sure, we have a strong heritage when it comes to our faith, right? We've got the laws of Moses, we've got the prophets, we've got the Psalms, we've got Holy Scripture. And we typically talk about our faith heritage as a positive thing. But we also have to acknowledge our own strong heritage of unfaithfulness. Not all heritage is good or helpful or healthy. We know the sins of our ancestors of faith in these holy scriptures. We talk about them every week in Sunday school, in worship, in small groups, with our friends, with our pastor. And when if, if we were to go around this room, I'm sure that we would all have other stories to tell about our own heritage, personal familial, ancestral, that we would rather leave behind. Parts of our heritage that have us paralyzed with fear, just like the disciples when they see Jesus risen from the grave. Since we're talking about United Methodist heritage, I want to talk a little bit about John Wesley because he is 
somebody that perhaps we can relate to. John Wesley's father was a priest in the Church of England, and John Wesley's mother was an extremely devout Christian, in many ways the inspiration for his own faith and his own vocation. John Wesley went on to college at Oxford, and he created what was called a, the Holy Club, which a lot of people made fun of. This was basically a, a group of very devout Christians who got together for small groups many times during the week. They had communion several times during the week, and they would get together for worship and personal accountability and service. But then John Wesley's dad dies. And all of a sudden, John Wesley is asked to come back to his community in Epworth to take his father's seat as pastor. John Wesley doesn't want to leave Oxford. He wants to stay, but he can't figure out a way to stay. But he really doesn't want to go home. So at the last minute, he gets an invitation to be a missionary, a missionary in the newly settled town of Savannah, Georgia. And so he decides, you know what, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to become a missionary. Unfortunately, when he becomes a missionary, it means that he doesn't take his father's appointment. And his family is kicked out of that parsonage. And so John Wesley fails to support his family, you know, but he, in the name of God, right? He fails to support his family, but oh no, I'm going to go and be a missionary. and I'm going to make a real difference. And you think that that's a really, like, sad story, but it gets worse. John Wesley, you see, when he gets to Savannah, pastors the only church connected to the Church of England. And he is extremely unpopular. His church services are too long. He consistently talks down to his people. He's too stiff, too stuck in the mud, too my way or the highway with his community of faith. We know how well that goes, don't we? It negatively affects his ability to connect with his church members. And furthermore, it, it impacts the way that he is trying to reach out to Native American communities to which he's evangelizing. He is failing at this. He cannot put himself into the shoes of other people. And one of the only positive relationships he has with anybody in this community is with a young lady named Sophie Hopke. Now, John Wesley taught Sophie Hopke French lessons. He was uh, a master of lots of different languages. A and soon enough, he had a crush on Sophie, and Sophie had a crush on him. But John Wesley, even though he liked her, he never made a move. So she got tired of waiting for him to court her, and she married another man in the area. Well, you know what? John Wesley becomes furious. How dare she marry another man? And then how dare she skip church for several weeks at a time? He gets so upset that he criticizes her, and then he denies her communion when she shows up with her new husband to the church. And at this point, Sophie Hopke's husband, who is a lawyer, mind you, sues John Wesley, forcing him to flee under the cover of darkness back to England to avoid a civil suit. This is the untold story, kind of real housewives of early Methodism that you've been missing, my friends. John Wesley 
doesn't last two full years as a missionary before he goes back to England, tail between his legs, feeling extremely bad about the way he conducted his ministry, the way he let his family down. And he goes into this kind of pit of depression, feeling like he's not good enough, feeling very disconnected from God. Now, I know that John Wesley is not the worst of the worst kind of people, but I do think that John Wesley's actions are emblematic of where we as people often find ourselves when faced with God's call on our lives. We have the capacity to be pretty selfish, and our selfishness impacts our relationship with God and other people, even though we think we are still doing pretty good. But man, we really hurt God, and we really hurt others, and we really hurt ourselves. While not everything about our heritage in the Methodist Church, or even personally, is pretty or pleasant, it's all important. Because it shows us, again, where we've been. In order to show us how we need to figure out where we're going to. That's the really good news about God. Through Jesus Christ, the positive parts of our heritage can shine through, even when we're in the midst of not-so-positive parts of our lives. And then those not-so-positive parts of our heritage, they get to be transformed along with our hearts and our minds so that we can live into a future more connected to God, more connected to other people, more in touch with ourselves and who God has called us to be and more in touch with the kind of future heritage for somebody else down the line who's going to need an ancestor of faith, who's going to need us. I'm glad that John Wesley isn't known for all the things that I've just shared with you, because as y'all know, he's responsible for creating a revival in England that has spread around the world. Before I became a United Methodist minister, before I went to seminary, I was actually a young adult missionary with the United Methodist Church. And my first placement was in South Africa. I was sent to a Methodist seminary that, connected, that is connected to the Methodist Church of Southern Africa. And I got to know all sorts of other Methodists from all over the southern part of the continent. And we all shared all sorts of amazing things. We, we shared a common tradition, as different as our living contexts were. But it was so cool to see that we were part of the same heritage, of the same theology. Even non-Methodist people are influenced by John Wesley. I don't know if y'all knew that, but John Wesley is the one who, who originated with the small group models for faith building and for service work. See, that megachurches owe a lot to us, and we, you know, we should, we should be getting a thank you, don't you think? But we don't get all of this, we don't get all the good things with John Wesley unless we get the whole picture of his heritage, right? Especially those ugly parts. Unless we know the pieces of John Wesley's shame. We don't have a great appreciation for the moment when his heart becomes strangely warmed worshiping at Aldersgate Street. You were told earlier that on the back of your bulletin is a little bit of the history 
of that moment. If, I invite you to turn to it, actually. Sort of in the middle of your bulletin, there's this piece where part of John Wesley's journal is quoted. And you'll see that John Wesley wrote, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warm. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. This was not the moment that John Wesley knew the fullness of God's plan for him. This was just the moment where Jesus appeared to him, just as he appeared to the disciples in our scripture, to say, I know where you've been. I know where you're going. But right now, just wait. Don't do anything yet. I'm sending you what my father has promised. And of course, we know what Jesus, what God has promised for us, right? We know what Jesus is talking about. We know that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And that's a sermon for next week. Right now, we're still dealing with the fact of Jesus connecting with us as he's about to leave. Jesus saying, you are my witnesses. Now go and wait because you have no idea what's coming up next. I know we are living in a time when so many people are worried about the heritage of local congregations, the heritage of the church at large. And I know that a lot of anxiety is also tied to the moving and the shifting of the United Methodist Church. These are anxious times, full of the threat of death and dying. But haven't they always been the church is dying the church is dying that's that's what i've been hearing kind of my whole life long and i know i'm not very old but from what some of my own clouds of witness have told me they've also been living with that threat the church is dying the church is dying and all this talk of death stops us from seeing the living christ when he approaches us when others approach us to say, hey, Jesus is alive. I've seen the empty tomb. He lives in me. Hey, Jesus is alive. I've walked with him and I've eaten with him. Hey, Jesus is alive. He is right behind you, ready to show you his wounds, wanting you to give him something to eat. We are part of an incredible heritage as Christians. It's hard to remember this fact every day or even every Sunday. It is so easy to get caught up in the fear of what we could lose if we forget where we have come from. Whether it's our own family history of what Christ has meant to us, whether it is a local congregation's history of how Christ has brought us through so many different times for hundreds of years, but we must remember that for as long as it's existed, the church has always been dying, always been under the threat of death. 
but it never dies. Because Christ is risen, and so are we. Even when things don't go as planned, just like in the lives of the disciples, or the life of John Wesley, or even in our own lives, God is there to make a way out of no way. God is there to remind us where we have been and what we can look forward to. God is there to say that I am going ahead of you, planning and preparing your way.